0: Welcome, everyone, to the Men's Journal Everyday Warrior Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Sorelli. Today, I've got Matt Mayberry, who has a great book that just came out on February 1st, Culture is the Way. Uh, you guys know, know, having listened to me, leadership and culture are my passion, so I have no doubt this conversation will uh, will, will take on a life it's, uh, of its own. But first off, Matt, thank you for, uh, for joining us. Uh, and you said you're hailing from Chicago today, right?
1: Yep. Thanks for having me, Mike. Look forward to it. Good.
0: And Chicago is your hometown now.
1: Correct. It is. Yes. That's where I'm calling okay. in today from.
0: Uh, but you, you grew up only 30 minutes outside the uh, the city in uh, Darien, uh, Illinois. Am, am I pronouncing that right, Darien? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I grew up in Darien, Illinois, which is probably about 30, 35 minutes outside of downtown Chicago. So that's where my parents, uh, you know, raised me and my brother. And that's where I kind of grew up and everything I know fe- really fell in love with the city. We, we came to the city every single weekend almost for the when I really from six years old and on. So. Uh, you know i think growing up in the suburbs of chicago and and having that direct access to the city really made me fall in love with my city now uh,
0: so you know you grew up in an interesting era too uh young with the uh the chicago bulls which uh, have you seen the, the the documentary the last dance of course how could i miss it of course that that was interesting cuz you know it, you know one i'm i'm 10 years older than you but so I, you know i'm in my teenage years watching the bulls they dominated the 90s of course, you don't see what's going on behind the scene. Uh, no one's going to deny that that is was one of the most high performing teams in the history uh, of the NBA. But what I found f- just interesting about the last dance is you got all the dirty details of of what was going on behind the scenes, and ultimately what the culture will, really, really, uh, really was. Uh, was that a
1: uh, eye opener for you, especially uh, hailing from the Chicago area? You know, it was, but it also wasn't. I think growing up in, you know, Chicago and and suburb, you know, for me, I was, I've heard all those stories of Michael Jordan, you know, as far as like his commitment to excellence and how much he wanted to be great, you know, and I think that, you know, that I I face it, I think it pissed a lot of people off. Uh, I think from the flip side, you can still be a great teammate. Uh, Me and you, we weren't in that locker room, so we don't know exactly what kind of a teammate he was, but, you know, I think he he definitely rubbed some people the wrong way and it was very evidently uh, clear in that documentary.
0: But you could say the same for high, you know, people that hold themselves to a high standard. You're naturally going to piss off people Absolutely. who just want some sort of semblance of balance.
1: Yeah, I think Kobe Bryant, who I actually grew up, you know, speaking of the Chicago Bulls and growing up in Chicago, I actually grew up a Lakers fan. You know, that really pisses a lot of people off. Um, you know, but I, I just fell in love with Kobe Bryant. I love the Los Angeles Lakers, uh, but yeah. he was the same way. I think he actually has a quote where it says, "Like, I'm allergic. I can't stand being around." lazy people, people who are not committed to greatness. So uh, you definitely see the similarity in there between Kobe and MJ.
0: Yeah, you do. And and we all know the you know, the proverb, uh, you know, iron sharpens iron. So as one man sharpens another, you you tend to identify or or try to surround yourself with people that are going to sharpen your, uh, your, your, your sword. Um, So Matt, first off, I got to ask, it always seems, you know, in terms of uh, MLB, who's your team in Chicago or is it somewhere else?
1: Cubs, you know, but <laughs> again, if any if any Chicagoans who know me are listening to this, uh, they're going to crack jokes and say that I was a traitor, you know, because I actually grew up a White Sox fan. Uh, probably when I was about fifteen, sixteen, I converted over to being a, being a Cubs fan because my grandfather, someone that I was closest to, really throughout my entire life, uh, he was a devoted, diehard Cubs fan. So that's why I made that you know conversion back back then. <laughs> Dude, it, it, it
0: almost seems like there's there's a line on a map in Chicago. If you if you're on this side, the West Side, you're you're I think it's West Side. You're a Cubs fan. If you're on the East Side, yep. you're a, a White Sox fan. How does that work?
1: North Side, yeah. Side. you know it's, side. it's very interesting because you would think that you know hey you just want you know both Chicago teams to do well but it's it's quite the opposite you know if you're a Sox fan you hate the Cubs and you can't stand for you know you want them to lose at all costs if you're a Cubs fan you hate the freaking White Sox and you want them to lose at all costs so I mean you know I never understood the dynamic and I think me growing up a White Sox fan and then converting to a Cubs fan I don't have that hatred towards the White Sox like my, most Chicagoans do but uh, it's something that still confuses me to this day. I never understood the hatred between both teams.
0: People have nothing. I, I hate to say it. Sometimes people have nothing else in their lives that 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 becomes the <laughs> all encompassing and and you know. But it goes to to show mindset of like you've got to hate someone else or or because you have so uh, so little and somebody else has so much more. You've got to hate them, which is not the uh, the case, which we, we know true. So, man, you you grew up uh, playing sports uh, in, in high school. Really excelled in football. You were playing both offense, defense, and then ev- eventually. Uh, and something I think you read, you had nineteen offers, but you ultimately chose yeah, 19 uh, scholarship Indiana. Offers,
1: I did. What, what, you know, but kind of take you back to a yeah. So I, I mean, Georgia, Georgia offered me. Uh, you know, they just won back to back championships. Tennessee, uh, Maryland, Northwestern. I mean, some of the biggest football programs in the country. But I think to give some context for you know all your listeners here, I, I think. You know, when you when you look at my story and I think my first book, which came out in 2016, Winning Clays, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I was very vulnerable in that sharing kind of my backstory. Because when you look at kind of the accolades from an athletic perspective and, uh, you know, where I grew up in the Chicago suburbs, had two wonderful parents still married to this day. um, You know, they're very surprised when I, I, you know, I was a full blown out drug addict, you know, three near death experiences, done every single drug you could possibly think of besides heroin. If I wasn't terrified of needles, I probably would have done that, too. Um, And the reason why I say that is because I think that it's very, when you look at someone's backstory and I'm sure even yours, you know, everyone thinks that the journey was easy. It was easy going uh, to kind of get to where you got to. But for me, it was a lot of hard, uh, hard learned lessons that, you know, almost near death. At one point, they didn't think that they were going to bring me back to life. Um, so, so that was kind of my backstory. So, you know, before we get in that athletic conversation, I just wanted to kind of, uh, you know, give that context for your listeners, because it really sheds light into really the the rest of the journeys, which I'm sure we'll get into later on.
0: So I, I, I can, we, we, you know, I just had Matt Higgins on Shark Tank, highly successful business leader, yep. rags to riches story. Um, and, and, your story sounds a little similar to mine, not, not rags to riches, um, Compared to guys like Matt or, or the Bernie Marcuses of the world that grew up with very little, uh, were lucky if they had food on the table. But I, I appreciate you being vulnerable, and, and I think there's no more masculine trait than, than vulnerability. What, what age did the drug problem start?
1: I mean, it really it really started at 13, mm-hmm. um, but but for me, I would say the real intensity of that really was 15, 16. Uh, particularly like right when I was a freshman in in high school, you know, and for me, my best sport was growing up was actually baseball. Uh, I was projected to get drafted straight to the major leagues, skip college, go straight to the major leagues. Uh, but I got kicked off my baseball team because I got caught stealing one of my teammates wallets. Well, the rest of my teammates were out of practice one afternoon. I stayed behind because I saw all the cash that was in that wallet and thought about all the drugs that I could buy. Um, you know, so that was my life, Mike, it, it, you know, really started at 13 years old, you know, for everybody that has a, a son or a daughter, can you imagine, uh, as which this happened to my parents, Your your the high school guidance counselor calls you and your spouse in and looks you directly in the eye and says that your son or your daughter will be dead before they ever get the opportunity to turn, you know, experience their 18th birthday, uh, you know, because that was the life that I was living at that point. That's insane. It was, it was that
0: a product of who you were hanging around? I, there, there's always there's always guilt. Absolutely. Uh, when you're
1: looking at the, you know, I always mirror, say a hundred percent, you know, I always say, where, you know, wherever I am, you know, in front of a, a group of 100 fortune, 100 CEOs or a university's athletic team, I always say you are who you hang out with. Show me your five closest mm-hmm. associates and mm-hmm. I will show you where your future is headed. You know, and I believe that to the core of me because uh, I lived that, you know, I lived that where I was hanging around with the, you know, the drug addicts, the gang bangers, the people that were committing robberies. I mean, the worst of the worst, like those were the people that I was running with and going with. So, uh, I adopted their habits, their mindsets, and their mentality of how they live life. And, you know, fortunately for me, uh, you know that wasn't the, the rest of my destiny. But uh, for for a few short years there, I really, really uh, lived a hard life and and put my mother and father through so much, you know, bullcrap.
0: Well, so so what what action did your parents take to to sort of break this this
1: this addiction? I mean, my parents really did everything they could, but nothing really worked. I mean, I, I broke my <laughs> father's ribs on multiple occasions when he would confront me about why well, I'm coming home past curfew. My own mother, the woman that I love more than anything, me see me do cocaine five times with thrown two eyes. So my parents did everything they possibly could, but I was just, I was so out of control. So really what the turning point was, Mike, uh, was my high school said, hey, Matt, no more suspensions, no more detentions. We are going to yeah. kick you out of this freaking high school, expel you if you do not go to a drug treatment facility for one month. And I was a gifted athlete. I know, I know 100% to my core uh, that I had more opportunities and chances probably than the next person because of my athletic ability. But uh, that was the turning point for me, you know, of, of almost getting expelled. And, Mike, I didn't actually go to the facility to get sober and work on myself. I went because my grandfather, the, the one that I told you I was very close to, yeah. he was a deep diehard Cubs fan. He offered me $500 if I was to go to that drug gym facility and start the process of working on myself. So can you guess what a drug addict wanted to do with $500? Exactly. Exactly. I mean, that's the only thing I was thinking about. So I didn't take ownership of wanting to get sober and better my life. And, uh, you know, fortunately for me, long story short, uh, two weeks into that drug treatment facility is when my life changed, when uh, this is the longest I've been sober for quite some years. And I had a heart to heart with my father and it just it rocked my entire world. And uh, I realized that this is not this cannot be the rest of Matt Mayberry's journey. So it was that moment, that epiphany. Uh, that really changed my life, that moment with my father.
0: That's, I, Matt, I'm glad to hear that. In, in as a parent, yeah, I, I know when I put my parents through hell. And uh, yes, were there some drugs in high school? There were. Uh, and did I get caught? Yeah. Um, I, I'm I'm glad you broke that. I'm glad, yeah, it makes your story that much more inspirational. And, and in fact, you know, I talk about, there's a guy who they wrote a book uh, about named uh, Adam Round. I didn't know Adam all that well, but I knew knew Adam and I was there the night he died, but uh came from Arkansas, uh had struggled with drugs and eventually joined the Navy. Uh, but it was a long, long fought battle with drugs before he uh he turned his life around and eventually became a Navy SEAL. So even even more inspiring. Um so that happened what they they sent you to the one month treatment facility your junior, senior year?
1: Yeah. This is my, this is all, so this, everything I just shared with you is from my yep. freshman and sophomore year, Holy you know, shit. so it was, I really didn't start turning around my, yeah, I mean, it was, it was, so it was very early on in my, yeah. you know, high school, you know, journey. Um, this is, I mean, it was that bad, that, that bad, right from the very good go.
0: So you eventually decide
1: football over baseball,
0: uh, or were you getting recruited for both when, uh, when talking to well, colleges?
1: So I was getting recruited for both, but, you know, obviously, as I mentioned there, baseball was my best sport. You know, I, I was good at football, but it wasn't my first love. I I didn't naturally love the game. Like I love baseball. Uh, But as I mentioned, I got kicked off my baseball team. So I didn't have baseball. You know, I don't know if the coach would have let me back on the team. Uh, You know, if I, if I showed that I was sober and I was dedicating myself and recommitting myself to be a great teammate and and do what I had to do to be a great uh, role model. But, you know, for me, I just ran with football after that, that vulnerable moment that I had with my father, um, you know, that moment in time epiphany that really altered the course of my life. uh, When he just said that him and my mother can't do this anymore, you know, just, just, they just can't do it anymore. And I realized in the back of my head that, you know, football is all I got now. You know, football is all I got, you know, because I was a DNF student at this point, I (laughs) skipped class, didn't apply myself. Um, You know, so football was really my, it was my outlet. You know, it was my way to kind of really go create that bigger future for Matt Mayberry. So um, I'll never forget, you know, when you mentioned the schools that offered me a scholarship. After that moment with my father, I went back into my room. He used to leave motivational books laying around the house just hoping one day his broken son would flip through 10 or 15 pages and get a spark of inspiration. And and that day happened uh, when there was a book on goal setting next to my bedside. I flipped it open and it was talking about the power of vision and writing down your goals. I wrote on a piece of uh, a note card, actually, three by five note card that I will receive a division one college scholarship by this time next year. Not knowing how it was going to happen, you know, all this self-doubt started to creep in my mind and I didn't know how it was going to play out. But I just had this burning, you know, desire in my gut, Mike, that, um, you know, I I have to change my life. And it starts with getting a scholarship for football.
0: I'd say it's not a bad goal to have. And of course, you know, that leads to an education as well. You eventually... Right. you you named some top programs but you eventually and not that indiana university is not a top program but it sounds like you chose Oh, no, they're not a top program <laughs> but it sounds like you chose a culture uh, and potentially a, a specific leader over the the top programs just sort of explain to me what Yeah what so was what the decision making process on that one man y-
1: yes so what happened i mean you know you're probably familiar with like you know the recruitment process of you know mm-hmm. when when you coaches come visit you and you go to the university and go on an official visit and for me Um, You know, I did have some pretty big time offers from some of the top football programs. Um, You know, for me, though, what really helped me fall in love with Indiana, I'll never forget with everything that I've been through. A lot of it was self-destructive, you know, but with everything I've been through, and Terry Heppner, the man I'm talking about, he was the head coach at Indiana at the time. um, I'll never forget sitting in his office one day uh, during an official visit. My my parents are there as well. uh, He looked me directly in the eyes and said, Matt, if you come to Indiana, you're going to get a world class education and you will get an opportunity to play in the NFL. But more importantly, I'm going to help you grow and evolve as a young man. That one day you were going to be more successful outside of the game of football than you ever will be playing the game of football. And, and I don't know what it was about that moment in that conversation, you know, you call it luck, whatever you want to call it. But it, I just knew right then and there that this was the man that genuinely cared about me, and and I wasn't just a, a piece of meat that was going to make that university multi millions of dollars because of the sport that I was good at. You know, this is a guy who genuinely cared for me, who wanted to see me succeed, not just in football, but in the game of life. And I'll never forget on the drive back home to, uh, you know, Illinois uh, from that official visit with, at Indiana. I told my parents that, you know, this is where I'm going to go. And I shocked everybody when I when I chose Indiana over Georgia and uh, Tennessee, some of those great programs. Yeah. But for me, yes. it was so it solely came down to that man, Terry Hepner.
0: That's, that's, a, that's the power of, of an amazing leader is that it draws in the talent Absolutely. that they, uh, they want. Uh, would you still consider Terry a, uh, a mentor in a lot of ways?
1: hundred, I mean, a hundred percent. I mean, everything I know about leadership and culture directly comes from that man. You know, I, I wrote about him in my first book, Winning Plays. Uh, and then even in my new book, Culture is the Way, um, you know, I use that guideline of kind of that, that's, that was my first discovery of the power of culture. You know, I'm sure we'll get into a little bit more, but you know, a lot of people think of culture as fluff and, uh, you know, something that's soft and th- there's no application to business performance and, and high performance. And uh, to me, that's a bunch of BS, you know, because I learned firsthand from that man, what culture truly is. It's really behavior at scale. You know, it's the expectations for that program, for that company. It's, it's the direction, what we deeply believe in, the purpose of what we're doing. Um, and, and I learned that front and center when I went to Indiana and saw that man of how he turned around started to turn around a a struggling program that won one game before I got there. And then one year later, we're going to a bowl game playing Oklahoma state and, you know, insight bowl in Tempe, Arizona, you know, and it was, it wasn't talent, you know, because in one short year, you're not going to get five-star recruits, four-star recruits. You're not going to, you're not getting more money from the school and boosters. Uh, Mm -hmm. it, It was the foundational core, the belief that he built in that program and really our identity of, of what's in store for our future. So absolutely, I, I identify Terry Heppner as one of the, really the biggest mentors in my life as far as leadership and culture.
0: And we all need them. And, and Matt, I'm smiling for one reason. When I go and talk to companies and, and there's a slide that says leadership and culture and, and there's a hidden word that then appears to say, hey, it really comes down to one thing. In this one thing, behavior. Leadership and culture come down, come down to behavior. Culture is not the espoused values oh, right. you put on the wall, which we often see like, excellence, community, integrity, service. Those, those are meaningless, yeah. meaningless words on a wall. But uh, for those listening, and I know Matt knows this, uh, there's a famous business management consultant. His name was Peter Drucker. He had a famous line that says, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Well, I, I sort of modified it. Culture may eat strategy for breakfast, but behavior eats culture for lunch. And ultimately, Matt, one of my beliefs, and I, I want to I I, I hear how do you bake this down because there is a process to creating a culture. What I think is that there's no MBA program in the world. and I, I, I opted to go to an MBA as I retired out of the SEAL teams because I knew very little about accounting finance. You could say my financial acumen was low. Um, but there was no one equipped at – and it was a top right. program to, to speak on leadership and culture. I mean they, they turn out right. very good business practitioners. I'm not going to d- debate that. Good accountants, good finance, investment bankers, whatever it may be, marketers, but very few programs are ill-equipped to teach leadership and culture. So I, I'd love right. to to hear. I, it sounds like Terry Terry excited. What has become, as he said, he was going to create uh, players that are more successful outside the game. It sounds like he he right. ignited this passion for leadership and culture in you. Um, how do you break down culture, man? Because there's a lot of businesses just, just don't know how to do it.
1: You you know, that's a great, fantastic question, Mike. And, you know, before we even dig into that, I would like to just say that, you know, I think, you know, I think the military, for example, I think the military and, and football particularly, I mean, you can classify maybe all of sports, but I think that uh, you know, probably part of, the, you know, one of the main reasons why me and you have been able to kind of do this work at a high level from leadership and culture is because of the lessons that we learned, you know, of doing what we do and, and seeing the effect of that, the power in that. Uh, because I remember when I first started, you know, the, doing this work, you know, roughly 10, 11, 12 years ago, um, you know, is that I don't have an MBA, right? I, I didn't, uh, you know, I wasn't at Deloitte, I wasn't at McKinsey. Um, you know, I think there's ver- so much value, you know, information from from going to one of those places and having that education, um, you know, but I think actually living it on the front lines of being an athlete or being in the military, Navy SEAL, whatever that may be. Um, I mean, that just, for me, that's given me all the ammo to actually go out in the real world, work with some of the biggest companies in the world and transform their cultures and actually truly change behavior at scale. You know, because when, when you talk about culture, I mean, that is it, you said it's behavior, uh, you know, and that's really the core of it. I mean, everything I do in the book is talking about behavior. It can sound good, right? It doesn't matter what's coming out of your mouth, but are we changing human behavior? You know, so, so the very first thing that I start with from a, you know, culture perspective uh, is really going to the leadership teams and their mentality first has to be in the right place. And what I mean by that is because you're never going to change or transform culture and you know this better than anybody uh, unless the leaders first understand A, the power of culture and then B, you know, they're willing to kind of lead that charge. They're willing to go first. That's what leadership is. It's a transfer of influence and impact And you have to go first, you know, and I think what we've seen 10, 15 years ago was the, you know, the popular command and control type of leader, which Mm -hmm. now Mm -hmm. that's completely shifted and changed. I think COVID-19 accelerated some of that, Um, you know, but it truly is what what I learned from Terry Hedner, servant leadership. Outside of that, it's, it's leading first, it's going. It's not about so much what's coming out of your mouth. It's what are you doing every single day? What are your what is your daily behavior showing? The rest of the company, the rest of the organization. So for me, that that's the very first thing that you gotta you gotta really nail that down, because you know you can talk about strategies and high complex uh, you know overviews and plans and implementation um, you know programs, but at the end of the day, if the leaders of a company don't first understand what that is and the importance of it, you already have your back up against the wall, and you're going to be massively challenged as you continue on with that journey. It is so vitally true. Um,
0: y- you know, there was a 1987 uh, Don't Do Drugs commercial uh, where a father walks into a bedroom. The son's on the bed. He's got these uh, these headphones on and he's got a cigar. The father has a cigar box in, the, uh, in his hands and inside is marijuana. He looks at the son and says, where'd you learn to do this? The son was caught. The son dodges the question. Father asks again. <laughs> and the 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 kid finally looks at his his father and it says says, "I learned it from watching you. I learned it from watching you dad and the the commercial wow. goes to black and it says, Don't do drugs." Where I'm going with that wow. is leaders set the tone and it, and and if you want to call it behavioral modeling or observational learning it's no different than leadership is no different than parenting. If you say you're going to do something, you better live those values. do as I say, not as I do uh." As, as as the world becomes more intelligent, it, it's totally a recipe for disaster. And you will lose respect. But you are right. And what we've seen is that a lot of companies that are these talent magnets, maybe because they have the best technology, but they become a revolving door for talent because the culture sucks. Right. Um, right. You know, is it is it, is it a – a lot of companies too I've seen, they, they can't tell you who they are. Do you have a process there? Does that start by, you know, before you even get the leaders to buy in and to act a certain way to demonstrate the behaviors they want it, uh, their, their people to emulate, is there a little bit of identification yeah. or definition of, of of the culture?
1: Absolutely. You know, one of the very first things, see, if you look in most companies, Mike, and I mean, everyone knows this, every company has a mission statement, vision statement, it's on the website, mm-hmm. et cetera. Mm-hmm. But then when you dig a little bit deeper and you ask a company, well, what is your culture? You know, if you if you find twenty employees, let's say that work all at the same company. Let's say you're at a conference and twenty employees from the same organization around a table, and you ask that group of twenty employees, "What is your culture at XYZ Company?" I guarantee you, nine times out of ten, you're going to get twenty different responses. And to me, that's a tragedy. You know, to me, that's that that it's it's tragic. To me, it's. It's a lack of alignment. It's a lack of clear understanding of what we stand for internally, because let's face it, until you fully understand who you are internally, you can't go out externally into the marketplace and dominate and do what you got to do. You know, you may have some, some success. It's not to say that if you don't have that definite, you know, defined uh, culture or internal organization that you're not going to be successful. That's not what I'm saying. But I think to build a long and sustainable culture that impacts yeah. the business and the people within that organization, you have to define the culture. and. And how I look at this, you know, in the book, I I lay out the process for doing that. But I use the term CPS, which is a cultural purpose statement. Um, And if you look at, again, using the example of football coaches, you know, football coaches, I think, are some of the best at doing this. For example, my coach now, uh, the coach at Indiana University, Tom Allen, he uses the, you know, the purpose, which is the backbone of that program, which is LEO, which stands for love each other. It's the foundation that if we love each other as men, if we love each other so much, we are not—we are going to hold each other accountable to not be average, you know. And and P.J. Fleck at, at University of Minnesota, uh, roll the boat. Their whole culture is some—you know—identified with roll the boat. Nick Saban at Alabama, it's focused on the process. Everything that organization is built on is not about winning championships. It's focused on the process. Microsoft is an example in the corporate world, yes. you know, where it's gro- its the growth mindset. Um, You know, so what am I getting at is that every great organization has a very clearly, clearly defined culture. So I use that terms of, hey, it's great to have the mission statement of who you are with your customers and out in the marketplace. But we also have to identify who are we internally as an organization? What is our culture? And I use the term, you know, the cultural purpose statement, as I mentioned, you know, one of the ways of doing that is a mantra. You know, it could be a statement. Um, you know, one organization that I kind of feature all throughout the book and share their process of shifting and changing their culture dramatically is, you know, their their cultural purpose statement is get better today together. You know, so everything they do operationally, strategically, you know, in the, in the market is revolved around get better today together, that we're going to have our strategy, we're going to have our goals, our KPIs, we're going to do what we got to do. But if we just get better for this particular day to, to together as a team, we're going to execute everything that we got to do. Now, from there, there's other avenues I'm sure we'll get into of the, you know, executing that, but you have to define that, the culture, you know, that's number one. It's the first step in my five-step process. Um, And quite frankly, it's really what the best organizations do better than everybody else is they have a clearly defined culture.
0: One, there seems like there's a lot of fluff. People just throw some words on the wall. Uh, They they sound great. They use words like flawless execution. I'm going to tell you right now, I've never seen flawless execution. In any profession or any industry, it's an illusion. <laughs> now it's something to aspire to, but if you ever came and watched us do a mission in in a real world setting in a combat zone, I could I could flip on the little uh, circus music. The we still won, we still achieved the uh, the the mission or, 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 or the desired end state, but it was never flawless, and there was always room for improvement. Right, I, and, and trying to get companies away from this 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 fluff. And getting – I love this cultural purpose statement, get to the the, the crux in a very simple way, uh, is it, beautiful. You know, the SEAL teams, which were created in the 60s, have been around for 40-plus years at, at this point. But they didn't develop a code, a creed, until 2004. And now you read the creed. It is wow. beautiful. It is a beautifully written creed. It embodies everything you'd want as a culture and what you'd want your people to strive for, but it's also five paragraphs long, and very few people memorize five paragraphs. And so I think they missed the yeah. uh, the mark there. But um, you know, w- here's my opinion. Let me let me give you this, and, and it'll lead to a question. I think the reason the military and sports do this so well is because they actually take the time to indoctrinate. I know sometimes indoctrinate is a is, right. uh, is an aggressive word. Maybe assimilate. Uh, or or better define, understand, and then assimilate to the culture or quickly uh move move towards the door, but the military has three months to do it, whether it's boot camp or o c s and I mean what that is is basically it's cementing behaviors here's who we are right this is uh the the values hold dear these are the behaviors associated with those values, and those those behaviors lead to these outcomes and you learn about that organization, what's gonna fly, what's not, and at the end of the three months. You're either prepared to go to the fleet, as we say, or you're going to have a rough road for the next four years then eventually out the door, if not sooner. Uh, sports does the same thing for their, their freshmen, for their new uh, professional athletes. Yep. In your opinion, what companies have you seen that, that that done well, rather than getting them right into the seat to do their job or out in the field, that actually have an onboarding process that explains all this? Have you seen this done well in the private sector?
1: You know, it's, it's funny you, you asked that because, um, you know, it's probably A, one of the most popular questions I receive. Uh, B, uh, my response is always yes, but I, I think that it's very it, it's also very scattered. And what I mean by that is there's some organizations that are very world class that maybe three or four things that they do, but then it's mm-hmm. also very different when you especially go into the larger organizations, 100,000, yeah. 200,000 people. Um, you know, it's, it's very siloed in are you know, they're going to have best in practice and world class in this particular, you know, systematic approach to what they do. But it's very rare, I think, to find an organization that really does everything from recruitment to a retention uh, to a great onboarding process to a very clearly defined culture and behaviors associated with those values and uh, leadership development program that transfers over to on the job impact. Um, but, yeah, there are, you know, Microsoft is a great example. Um, you know, I've been very fortunate to work with a lot of organizations that do a phenomenal job. Southern Glaciers One and Spirits, one of those. Mm-hmm. Uh, Direct Federal Credit Union, another. You know, Autodesk is a great company that re- really is world class in a lot of those areas. So, um, you know, they're definitely out there. But, Mike, as, as you just said, um, you know, I think that, that the military and sports, and no way, shape, or form I comparing this, you know, sports to military. Yes. Military's life Oh, that. no, no, no. Thank you for capping. that. you know, I think that, that both, both of those are, you know, especially in sports, right? The talent, everyone's talented. You get to the NFL or even big time college football, everyone has the talent. It's not about that. You know, it's about how do we get men from all different walks of life, rowing the boat in the same direction, marching toward our common vision. You know, when it comes down to that defined culture behaviors, um, you know, and and really articulating that and spelling that out. And then the leaders living that, role modeling that day in and day out, living that, breathing that, eating that, sleeping on that, um, you know, and, and that when you see that transfer over to the workplace, I mean, uh, give you a perfect example. I, I think that the best organizations that are in the best are by either former high school or college or even professional athletes, you know, because they have that DNA ingrained in them. It's not to say that, you know, some of the MBA and, you know, Harvard grads are not great leaders. Cause that's, I mean, some of the greatest leaders ever came from those, uh, you know, world-class institutions. But I think that you do see the, the similarity there between the military and sports, as far as the leaders that go out there, now they're the CEO, they run that company because they have that ingrained in their DNA. They know the importance of it.
0: You know, I was speaking with uh, uh, Dave Perry, who, who played football at the, uh, the University of Idaho. Same thing, CEO of Accelerate 360, highly successful uh, company, uh, portfolio company. But I mean, this is the same reason that Enterprise hires a lot of you know, NCAA athletes. It's because right. they don't have to train the team-oriented aspect into them. And, and quite frankly, Matt, if you ask me, you know, I don't want to say I did well in the military. That's for others to decide. I tried to live my values. Did I always live them? No. But I think the reason I, I assimilated into the military uh, background so quickly was because I played a lot of sports in high school, and I loved it. I identified with the team more than I identified, I identified with we more than I identified with me. Um, it. But the private sector in, in, in the civil in U.S. society holds some some different values. You know, in sports, there has to be conformity. There has to be conformity right. in the civilian world. There is more of a precedence on on individuality. But what are what are the? Let me let me let me reverse engineer this question. What are the impacts if you don't get the culture piece right? What are the most tragic companies you've ever
1: seen? I think Boeing's a great example, right? I mean, when you look at like, uh, you know, the Boeing's a great example where, you know, for so long they were known for to be world-class, you know, the safest airplanes in the entire world. Uh, and then obviously that crash, you know, I think there were two separate crashes that happened not the too Max. long ago. You know, it, it came to fi- find out that the executives knew about the problem. Uh, they, they didn't, you know, tell the information or delay the rollout of that. They, they, they literally went through with the problem when they even knew, you know, all of, of the downfall, you know, and, and, so what that's saying is that they went away from what made them world class in the beginning, you know, because they were thinking profit first. And, and so the moment you start thinking in terms of profit over people and culture, you're already doomed. And what's at what's at stake for neg- neglecting culture? Everything. Absolutely everything. You know, in, in your world, it's life or death. In my world, it's yes, wins and losses, but it's also careers. Um, it's yeah. also it could be injury. Um, You know, so, I mean, you're looking at from from so many different angles, but in the corporate world, the difference is this. In military and sports, the effect of neglecting culture is immediate, right? It's immediate, right? You you, you play on Saturday or Sunday. There's film to watch that. The whole world, ABC, 5 million people are watching it. They're they're judging your performance in real time. In the private sector, right, you can make a mistake, but the world's not going to find out about that from a year from now. Yes. So I think there's a different demand for urgency to get the people aspect right, the culture aspect right in military and sports because of that. That's just one of the examples. But when you ask what is at stake for neglecting culture, you know, I I say very confidently and boldly, fricking everything. Again, it's why, you know, even when people hear about the cultural purpose statement, well, Matt, you just said words don't build culture. They don't. And one of the very first things I do when, you know, talking about that cultural purpose statement is we don't do anything else for a good four, five, six months because those leaders have to understand that just because we're working out a statement or a mantra to define the culture of this organization, what freaking matters is what you do daily. You know, we we may be working on this now, but we have to create the mechanisms for us to live this out. Um, and I, I think when you when you say that there's been a change, right? And you know what's been going on from the you know corporate America, I think what what so many Navy SEALs and, and military leaders and, and sports leaders and coaches understand is that there's a balancing act a lot of people and leaders in the, in the business world think that i can't demand greatness for my people we cannot have a culture of excellence because we're going to be worried about stepping on people's toes or upsetting people we got to make them happy 24 7. and and quite frankly i think that is the exact opposite of a high-performing culture you know because you can have a very demanding and excellent driven culture while also still challenging people in a very servant, healthy way.
0: So this is where, and you you mentioned it, this is where I consider that a culture of love. And and let me dissect this. So I, you know, I've had a lot of time to reflect since I've been out of the military and I do realize now that some of the best leaders I worked for with operated out of love for their people. And they loved their people a lot more than they hated the, the enemy or their competition. And it was a good friend of mine. who was a, uh, just devout Roman Catholic. He was a uh, army uh, tanker. I uh, went to Boston college and he said, Hey, the highest form of compassion is accountability. And when he broke it down against leading people is no different than parenting. He said, if you see your son do something wrong, what do you do about it? I said, I take immediate action I, with professionalism tact, help him explain from what he just did wrong so that he learns and becomes a competent, good contributing member of society. That's can make decisions on on his own or, or my daughter uh, likewise and he said that's accountability in the cult- uh, the corporate sector as well that 's the highest form of compassion now if you do it with professionalism tact and they know you love them and the reason you 're holding them accountable is because you never want to see them make that mistake again, then you 've created right. a culture of love but why do you, you know accountability it it, people can, can you know convolute it with uh confrontation, and we all know people will hide from confrontation um where does accountability? Uh, I, I know accountability in the sports world. How, how, how have you let me say this How have you cracked that nut within the private sector? Because if you do something on the field, I know your your teammate's going to call you out right away. And they may do it with passion, and some people take that as as a direct attack, but the private yeah. sector is is different. You do that, you can shut somebody down. have you How have you seen accountability upheld uh, in a very professional, tactful way in the private sector?
1: Absolutely. You know, I think that, again, this is, this really comes over from a direct lesson I learned from the game of football. You know, I think that when you, when you, when you're talking with leaders about driving accountability and holding people on their team accountable, you know, you first have to say, are you holding yourself accountable? And if you follow that leader around for 30 days, mm-hmm. um, you know, you'll, you'll start to realize that they're probably not holding themselves accountable, you know, and what the best football coaches do, what Terry Hetner did so much of is that in front of the whole team, he would say, guys, I, I messed up here guys. I did this wrong. Or guys, I want your feedback. How am I doing with this? How am I doing with, you know, the this team meeting? Like what what's resonating? What's working? So he's entering into that that situation very vulnerable and empathetic. And he's also saying that I'm the leader of this program, but I also don't have all the answers. And a lot of leaders in the in the private sectors, they they believe that, you know, they have to be the smartest in the room, that they have to know all the answers, or at least have their people think that they look like they know the have all the answers in the room. Um, You know, and I think that it really derails all their efforts, you know, but I think using Tom Allen as an example, who's right now the current Indiana University football coach, he was asked, Tom, what does, what does Leo, this Leo talk, love each other? What the, what, what the heck does this have to do with football, a very violent sport? And he said, because I love you so much that I'm going to demand greatness out of you, that I'm never, ever going to let you be mediocre every single day of your life while you were in this program for the next four years. And and I just, I was, I just stepped back and I was, you know, I I thought about that, you know, because it's, it's so true. When you said like accountability is compassion. I I really believe that the problem is with this though, Mike, and I'm sure you've seen this is that a lot of, and, and again, coaches do the best of this. You can't hold someone accountable until you first connect with them as a human being. Because if you try being too accountable, drive accountability, if you're too tough on them, uh, if you're, if you're coaching them in a, in a particular way and rubbing them off in the wrong way, you know, it's not necessarily because you're accountable or you're driving that tenaciousness or commitment to excellence. It's because they don't trust you yet. There's no connection. There's no deeper late layer of, of that engagement. And, and I think that's when I look back at the best football coaches I had. They were also some of the craziest. Like they were in my face every course. single day. They were in my ear. Of course, you know, you know. But but what they did is, I always knew it came from a place of love. I knew it came from a place of them wanting to see me succeed and go out in the field and and, and have a great game. And and I think that is the biggest drop off, Mike, is that a lot of leaders in the business world, you know, is that they don't understand that you have to love first and then be tough. Not this whole talk of tough love. Cause if you're too tough without the love, you're doomed, you know? So it's, I think John Gordon, you know, said it is you, you, you have to love first and then be tough.
0: It, and you've heard this quote, people don't care about how much, you know, until they know how much you care. And it is the truth. You, you've you got to have love. You've got to show love. You've got to build relationships Absolutely. before you can give uh feedback that will hit, uh, and resonate with, uh, with people. So, you know, culture, we look at it from the sort of an aggregate view of the sum of all its parts. Talk to me about, and I think you touch on it in the book, how building a culture where people can become the best version of themselves would lead to a better yep. organization as a whole.
1: Oh, you know this part. And I, got, if, you, if I was with you in person right now, you'd see the the, the uh, you know hair sticking up on my arms. You yeah. My, the yeah, reason yeah. why is because, you know, the best football programs again making that distinction. Um, is that, you know, the goal is to win a Super Bowl, it's to, the goal is to win a national championship, right? But we're also building young men. You know, we're, we're building young men for for the game of life. And, and I think that, you know, when I had that interaction with Terry Hebner, I didn't know it at the time back then, but that's why that that meeting resonated so deeply and profoundly with me is because, you know, it was just that moment. And when I look at now, um, you know, the best organizations, what, what the best leaders do differently than everyone else, and I've seen this front row, is that they use their business to build people, not use their people to build their business. And there's a very big difference for that, right? Because the average companies who have retention problems, they can't attract top talent, they're notorious for just utilizing their people, putting them in roles and then using those people, overworking them, underpaying them, not training and developing them to build the business. And then they they wonder why at the end of the year they have retention problems and they're all leaving. But the best organizations, they win in the marketplace, but they also utilize their business as a mechanism to grow and develop their people. Um, you know, and, and how I look at that is we started this conversation with this talk of culture as it's really behavior at scale. It's behavior, turning values into specific, concrete behaviors day in and day out. And, and also, it also, it's also applies to winning in the marketplace and building people. It's about what are we doing daily, day in and day out? And I think that it directly applies into building people, right? Because you can teach people the specifics of a job or a role. You know, but at the end of the day, what you really need to get specific about is what are the behaviors and characteristics that we're truly looking for at the core of our organization that's going to help us carry out the mission of this organization and win also in the marketplace. Uh, you know, so so that's really what, you know, when I go in and you probably do the same work, Mike, is, um, you know, we want to win. You know, we want to increase the gross profit percentage by 25%. We want to do what you want to do from a business standpoint. But we also want to grow and develop men and women in this organization because that that directly impacts the business.
0: Now here's the reality. And I know you've seen this, is it cultures aren't built overnight. Cultures are built <laughs> no. over years, if not decades. Let, let me tell you a, a quick one. Cause I, you know, this, this analogy will sit with you, but I had a uh, mentor. Uh, uh, he actually was a brigadier general um, at West Point, uh, but Howard Prince, he was wounded in Vietnam third time was the most dramatic, uh, mortar hit near his leg. And so he went on a professional track of becoming oh, a, uh, man. a professor. He, he got his, his doctorate in, uh, in industrial, uh, psychology or organizational psychology, but he talked about the army and the army, uh, you know, when i talk to companies, I say two, two organizations have really written the manual uh, on leadership and no, it's not the Navy SEALs. The, the Navy SEALs plagiarized their leadership manual for, from these two, it's the Marine Corps and the army. And these organizations have been around for a very long time since the inception of our history. And they're great organizations or great manuals. But he talked about when the Army switched from a all-volunteer force, I'm sorry, all-drafty or drafty uh, force post-Vietnam to an all-volunteer uh, force post-Vietnam. He said the Army, an organization that prided themselves on uh, leadership, had to relearn how to lead. Because how they dealt with the draftee, somebody who was forced to go into the military, uh, wasn't resonating with somebody who raised their hand and said, I proudly and willingly want to go into the military. And they were suffering from attrition. So if an organization that had, at that point, was over 200 years old, had, uh, you know, who had written a manual, 200 years old, had to relearn over a decade, then think about it what it takes for for the private sector. And it is a very large organization, but how often do you see a leader who gets terminated too quickly. i.e., like a football coach who is making headway of changing the culture of a program, but it's just, it's too, too long of a road. Yeah. They may have, it may have gone from a one and eight record to a five and five record. Um, but they're terminated too early cause they just weren't given time to build that culture. Is, is that a, a common thing you see, uh, in football as well as the, uh, the it- private sector?
1: It is. You know, I would say that it probably was more common 10 years ago. I think now you're starting to see a lot of athletic directors and even board members in, in the business world, you know, have a much more clear understanding of, you know, what does success look like for us, right? So even if, you know, we were in turmoil three years ago and we won't go from winning one game to five games, nowadays that coach may have a little bit more you know leeway there as far as continuing to build the program uh but absolutely i've seen that you know play out in real time and i think that it was more relevant though 10 years ago but you still see it today and i think a lot of times it's very unfortunate but i will also say that i think 9 times out of 10 maybe 8 out of 10 times um you know there's probably a good argument for why that coach is being fired you very yeah. rarely is a coach going to get fired even if they're losing uh obviously if you're losing two games, you know, three games, four games, you know, for mm-hmm. three, four, five years and you're at the, you know, let's say Texas, right, you're gonna get fired. It's the reality of it. Um, but if you're if you're slowly incrementally getting better and the players love you and you you have a great track record of connecting with people and doing what you gotta do, um I, I think you, you find that very, you know, less likely nowadays than you did 10 years ago.
0: I've got a a good friend, Tom Herman, uh who Got fired as the UT football coach with an eight and three record and took the team to uh, three consecutive bowls. Sometimes those programs, there, there is I politics <laughs> uh, involved. Anyway, Tom's doing fine. He's now, uh, I think, what do you just take uh, Florida Atlantic University? And I have no doubt he will set a culture think there so. that will turn yeah. that around. I, I want to lay a hook for people, and I don't want to necessarily give them the answers because, of course, hey, what you hear on the podcast is not going to set you up for success. You need to go buy the book. You need to go in detail. You need to get a highlighter and, and truly reflect on what's, what's being written. But you talk about the five common roadblocks that prevent leaders from using culture to get the best from their people and how to overcome them. I don't okay. want how to necessarily how to overcome them, but some leaders, the problems are staring them right in the face. These, these roadblocks help identify it for those leaders that may be listening. They're like, "Yep, yeah, I've got a culture problem. What are those five obstacles?
1: You know, w- without giving away too much, you know, I'll start with, you know, look in the mirror. Mm-hmm. You know, that that number one there is, is lukewarm leadership buy-in. And the reason why I use the term lukewarm uh, is because, you know, it could have just been lack of leadership buy-in. You know, well, I, I want to try to get a little bit more specific and go with lukewarm because what you will find is that you'll have a lot of leaders with one foot in, one foot out. You know, you'll have some leaders who, you know, for the two months, they're, they're com- completely committed, but then... You know, when when some distraction and complexity arises in the business, they're completely, you know, reverse engineering going back to how they were five years ago. Um, You know, so the number one thing, you know, is that the leadership team cohesively as a unit, as a team, that top team, the senior leadership team has to understand that one leader can't make a team, but one toxic leader who's not committed can certainly break and dismantle a team. You know, it's number one. I'm sure it's the work that you do. I know when I go into an organization, even if we're changing culture or, or writing out a cultural transformation that's going to be for the next 12 or 24 months, the very first thing that we do for the next six months is drive top team engagement. All the, t- all the time is spent there. I mean, it's driving top team engagement. It's it's doing team building exercises. It's getting clear on what we stand for as an organization. You know, you know where are the problems? Where are the dysfunctions? You know, airing it all out there. You know, because if, if, if the leadership team is not leading the charges, we already said at the beginning of this podcast, you're, done. you're doomed. You yeah. know, you're done. And, and I think a lot of leaders, they still don't get that. You know, they, they could think that, you know, hey, if we have 20 people, let's say, on our top team and we have 18 people who are completely committed, but two people are just, you know, they're in and out. They're not fully there. To me, that's still a big, major problem. It's a a massive flaw. And I think that, that, um, you know, so you got to look in the mirror and you got to start there. Number one, you're trying to build culture. You know, the second area I'd like to highlight is, you know, distortion and distraction. You know, what I mean by that is a lot of leaders, they'll read a book, um, you know, and and, which I think is great. You should read and Mm -hmm. learn as much Mm -hmm. as you possibly can. They'll read an article on HBR. Uh, They'll hear about a best practice of what Microsoft or Apple is doing. Uh, And then they'll think exactly those same best practices are going to work in their organization. And I always say this, there is not one and tried true answer to build culture. And I I wrote a book on it, entire book on it, you know, and I deeply believe that there is not one program. There is not one system that is 100% tried and true for every organization in America. Why is that? Because every organization has its own unique needs and specific tailored mechanisms that have to be derived and really transferred and cascaded throughout that organization for that specific organization in that market with where they are in their current reality. Um, and, and so distortion and distraction is a major roadblock because, you know, you'll have, you know, I read this article, now we're doing this and we're doing this and we're going to change this. And so then you're just running around doing 25, 55 things at one given time, you know, so, so that's a huge one. Uh, You know, the third one, you know, that I would like to highlight because I think it's very important without giving too much away is the lack of ability to cascade change, the lack of ability to cascade impact and influence. And what I mean by this is, you know, a lot of companies, they'll they'll get some traction with the top team. Everybody will feel good with where, you know, where we are from a defined culture. Um, But then when you look at, especially if, let's say, you know, an organization that has maybe 10,000 or 19,000 employees, 200,000 employees, you're talking a different ballgame. I mean, you have to be obsessed with making sure that that impact and influence and momentum and energy transfers all throughout the organization. And that, that takes a long time. You know, I think a lot of leaders think that this can be done in a six-month journey or four-month journey. You're mistaking yourself. I mean, it's a daily grind and focus, but it pays and, off. The payoff I think, of that is extraordinary. But I think you may be saying that with the larger
0: organizations. Yeah, if you've got a team of three. If you're pouring in for six months, you may be able to change the culture of that that small four person team. Right. But for most of the the small to right. mid size, even corporate, yeah, you know, you're talking a a decade long fight. But yeah, that that's that's tough absolutely for a lot of leaders to accept. Sorry, I mean, I, I, I disrupt you. Number I right. mean, even even
1: with even with smaller, you know, small businesses, though, you know, I yeah. think even though yes. I do most of my work in in large entities, you know, mm-hmm. you still see that same challenge with with small businesses that yes. may have four team members. You know, mm-hmm. ah, we did culture work for six months. Now we're done. Well. Is it ingrained yeah. in you? Yeah, you know, one of, one of the best ways I like to say, in de, you know, define culture, you know, is um, what are the behaviors? How do people act? How do people talk? And how do people define your organization when the CEO is not in the room? And, and to me, you know, someone presented that to me and I was just so, you know, so dumbfounded almost, you know, because I, I think about that and I'm like, man, it speaks volumes to truly where we want to get to. You know, it speaks volumes to where we have to shift the organization, the mindsets, and the behaviors of everybody in here of, of truly, um, you know, what are we doing behind closed doors when no one's watching? That is what your culture is. And, and funny enough, I pull my
0: slides up. Culture is not when the CEO is in the room. It's what your people do when he's not or she's not. <laughs> and, and that is so, you know, one of the things I will give the counterterrorism community, which which is our top performers, It seemed like culture was baked into every discussion. Is this in accordance with our values, the behaviors we hold dear? If it's not, we better rethink it. Uh, And if it's not, we better be able to justify why we're we're deviating from what may seem like our culture.
1: Right. Yeah. And and I think that, that, you know, that's, it's a great, it leads me into my other segment, you know, as far as Mm -hmm. you have to understand a, what what is culture for? Right. So you got to remove the negative misconceptions. And, and then this, this can start when you're doing that work with that top team and that leadership team. Um, you know, but but this even transfers over because what will happen is you may have, let's say, three or four, or five, six, seven workshops where you're defining culture and you're talking about that. But the real issue is when you go back out in the real world, you're in a heated meeting with a customer or supplier. And then you revert back to your old tendencies and habits, right? So we have to get to a point where we're ingraining behavior; it, it's becoming second nature in the organization. Um, but but that leads me right into my point of after you understand of what culture is, what me and you you know defined it on here in this podcast, it's behavior at scale, or you know it's behavior, H- however you define that, right? You have to understand the sole mechanism of a culture is yes to make people feel that they're fulfilled and they enjoy coming to work every single day, but it's also to carry out the mission and execution of the strategy of the organization. Culture, point blank, it's not to make everybody happy. As a matter of fact, a great culture pisses some people off. You know, it pisses some people off. But culture's sole job is to help that organization win in the marketplace, execute the strategy, and develop and grow its people. And, and a lot of leaders make the, they make the confusion of culture is separate from strategy." And so Peter Drucker's quote, "I've even in the book, one of the things that I've done is I didn't go ahead and dismantle it,, yes. uh, but for so many years in like you know my speeches, I would yeah. say,, yeah, I would say, culture eats strategy for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. But what I started to realize doing a lot of this work, Mike, you know, the past 11 years, is I realized that the more I say that, the more it confuses leaders. That if I just work on culture, if I just focus on culture, everything, no, it's simultaneously you have to have that balancing act. We got to have a great strategy, but then we also got to connect with the daily behaviors and our culture. That's going to help be the driving mechanism for us to carry out our strategy. So You have to get very clear with that. Like strategy and culture got to be connected. It's got to be culture worked and it's got to be grown. It's got to be cultivated every single day. Like you said, every meeting. Everything that you're doing, culture has got to be integrated. It's got to be implemented into every function of your business. Amazing.
0: Matt, you know, this – did, did you do an audio book on this uh,
1: This book? The audio book comes out, I think, actually uh, February 27th maybe. It's February 27th, I, I believe. And, and for listeners – for books that's common is you release the paperback
0: and the hardback and usually the audio book uh, comes back later. It's obscene how long I will it preface takes it by audiobook. saying I,
1: I, I'm not the one, I'm not the one reading it though. You know, uh, you know, that's a whole oh, other separate you yeah. know, conversation story we won't get into here, but uh, you know, it's funny cool. because I, I'm against authors who don't read their own audiobooks and, and, and here I am not doing it. <laughs> was it, was it a time time issue? It was time, you know, from when the publisher wanted, wanted to get it done and then yeah. my count, you know, Long story short, lack of communication up front and uh, just didn't get around to
0: it. Hey, I, I'm, I'm with you. I, I released uh, The Everyday Warrior in uh, January. Uh, the audiobook doesn't come out until March because I, I couldn't get to the uh, – the funny thing too, uh, did, you, did you read your book, first book or did somebody – did you have a reader? I did. I did. You, no, I, I read the first book. It's amazing I like I remember the first warning I got was like, hey be prepared it's you know you're gonna get tired I'm like I'm a, I'm a retired Navy seal I'm fine and after two days in the studio I was smoked I started slurring I'm like, what the hell is going on here uh it's an interesting process for those that have uh have never done it um no so guys here's what I'm gonna tell you again we dropped the links for all the books and there's a reason we bring on thought leaders and Matt clearly is a thought leader culture is the way uh this is long overdue um you know, everyone wants to build an organization for speed, impact, and excellence, uh, leaders at every level, uh, as Matt is, uh, is advocating here. Uh, Matt, uh, reading the book is one thing, but I know there's a lot of companies that are going to want to bring you in. Where can people, these companies,
1: best find you on the consulting side of what you do? Yeah, probably my website, which is uh, mattmayberryonline.com. That's probably the best place to connect with me. I'm on all social media platforms as well, uh, but probably the website, mattmayberryonline.com. We will drop
0: that as well. Matt, I cannot thank you enough for joining us. Uh, I just got the books yesterday. uh, So I haven't totally dug in, but I can assure you, given my passion for culture, I'm going to learn a lot from this book. Clearly what you just stated has made me rethink some of the ways that I teach. So uh, from me and from all the, uh, the listeners, thank you.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Mike. And I I sincerely mean this by, you know, keep you doing the phenomenal work you're doing. You're changing lives. And from afar, I've been you know rooting for you for a long time. So I absolutely love the work you're doing and the difference you're making. Thanks for having me, buddy. I I appreciate that. And and again,
0: also, uh, Matt and I ended up on the list from uh, Global Gurus for Top Speakers. I came in at 29 out of 30. Matt was much higher ranked. So, if you're listening, you know who to contact to bring in and speak to. Your I company. don't think so. Uh, it's I don't Matt. think so much.
1: Um, I think I was 28 or 27 or something. Well, hey, I don't think. I think it, we're like. I, I've got my goal don't think for next much. year. I think you're you're I'm being good. too nice. You're being too generous. I I, th- I think I'm 27. I think I might be like one or something ahead of you. Yeah, okay. Well,
0: guys, go check him out. Matt Mayberry uh, online.com. Go purchase his book. We'll drop the links. Matt, have a good one. And for everyone, this is the Men's Journal Everyday Warrior. I'm your host, Mike Sorelli, and Matt Mayberry saying thank you, and we'll see you next time.